Hello and welcome to the Legal Perk Podcast. I'm Zane Shankiti, and today, for our business breakdown episode, we'll be looking at Uber. I'll analyze the company's journey, no pun intended, and growth, both from a business and legal perspective. Uber's business model seems to be based on a few key points. One is that it is easier to ask for forgiveness than to ask for permission. Secondly, that it is easier to raise prices after they have undermined the competition. Thirdly, having an emphasis on hiring data scientists and economists to keep improving the algorithm and raise profits. And finally, treating drivers as though they were not employees means that Uber can have a lot of control and an increase in profits without taking on the responsibility of an employer, absolving the company of having to pay minimum wage, sick pay and holiday pay, amongst other things. Part 1. The History of Uber Uber's story begins in Paris in 2008, where the two founders, Travis Kalanick and Garrett Camp, were meeting for an annual tech conference. Both men had sold startups they had co-founded for very large sums. Rumor has it that on leaving the conference one winter night, they were unable to get a cab, and initially thought of the idea to be able to order a timeshare limo service via an app. One year later, they began on working on the prototype, initially called Uber Cab, and tested their service in New York in early 2010 using three cars, officially launching their product in San Francisco a few months later. 2011 was a crucial year for Uber's growth, highlighted by rounds of funding for the company. However, despite launching UberX, which provided a less expensive alternative to a black car service, Uber has yet to become a profitable company. According to Forbes, Uber burns over $4 billion annually, but the company is hoping it will actually become profitable by the end of 2020. Part 2. Opposition Uber gaining popularity was a real example of disruptive technology and completely changed the face of vehicles for hire, food delivery, and transportation in general. To really understand this, it's important to examine the regulations surrounding taxis. In many countries and in many cities, taxis had to buy licenses to operate. This meant that usually a company would buy lots of licenses as well as cars and car insurance, and they would hire employees to drive those cars. The process in many cities and countries could be quite expensive. For the average consumer or client, many would have to wait around in the streets trying to hail a cab. In some cases, and in some cities, cab drivers might simply refuse to take on a passenger going to an out-of-the-way area. Clients would sometimes have to give directions about how to get to their desired location. And there was oftentimes a lot of inconvenience with trying to sort out change, since many taxis did not take credit cards. There were other inefficiencies with the system. Many thought that taxis could sometimes be too expensive, or that drivers would often take the longer route to get to a location. As well as the fact that sometimes there was a lack of supply, particularly during late times of the day, or in more quiet areas and neighborhoods. But this whole system was the norm for most people 10 or 15 years ago. And then Uber came along. With the push of a button, the app could locate where you were, as well as the location that you wanted to go to, send a driver your way, and then charge via a credit or a debit card. It's hardly surprising, therefore, that the company was considered, both for regulators as well as for taxi owners and taxi drivers, a complete nightmare. And it seemed that wherever Uber went, opposition from regulators, taxi companies, and taxi drivers seemed to follow. In 2014, taxi drivers in many different parts of the world staged large-scale protests against Uber, notably in London, Berlin, Paris, and Madrid. Taxi companies were claiming that since Uber avoided 
the license fees that taxis had to get and were bypassing local laws, they were creating unfair competition. Uber lost its license to operate in London in October of 2017, which was overturned in June of 2018, allowing the company to operate under a 15-month license as long as it complied with certain conditions. In some countries, Uber was operating illegally, having been banned by regulators. However, what the company did was offer incentives to drivers, including paying off fines that drivers incurred for breaking the law. In many cases, Uber has refused to admit to operating illegally. However, drivers in such countries as Australia, the Netherlands, and Jordan have admitted that the company was offering them incentives to continue driving for the company, even though it was against the law. Uber's strategy was to continue operating, even if it was against the law, dealing with any consequences until the regulators changed the laws in their favor. A strategy that in many countries actually worked. The company has come under fire for its aggressive use of certain tactics. In 2017, the New York Times reported that for years, Uber had used a tool called Grayball to deceive law enforcement officials in cities where its services violated regulations. The tool used geolocation data, credit card information, social media accounts, as well as other data points to identify individuals that they suspected of working for city agencies to carry out investigations into Uber's practices in cities where its services were against the law. This program would help Uber drivers avoid fines and detection by law enforcement. It meant that in some countries, such as in Australia, law enforcement agents had to keep assuming new identities by the use of different credit cards and SIM cards in order to keep avoiding getting detected by Uber's program. While Uber defended the program, claiming that it denied rides to fraudulent users, law enforcement agencies in several countries said that the program could be considered intentional obstruction of justice, as it would prevent law enforcement agents from actually enforcing the law. The company now claims that that is technology that is no longer used. According to the CEO of the Australian Taxi Industry Association, the use of this technology allowed Uber to continue operating and simply wait for the regulators in the Australian government to change the laws in their favor. It also gave Uber an edge over ride-sharing apps that came before it. In Australia, an app called GoCatch essentially lost the market because the company had decided to wait for the laws to change before implementing ride-sharing rather than do what Uber did, which is operate illegally and then force the regulators to change the laws in their favor. The former CEO of GoCatch, David Holmes, pointed this out as part of Uber's strategy, which was that it was easier to ask for forgiveness than it was to ask for permission. Uber had the money to combat fines and lawsuits, so it continued to operate illegally in countries like Australia, until the laws changed to accommodate them. Another thing that allowed Uber to gain an edge over their competitors was the use of Surfcam spyware, which allowed them to poach drivers from their competitors directly. Again, Uber now claims that they no longer use this program and that they have put in place better policies to ensure ethical practices. The company is now dealing with a landmark class action lawsuit in Australia, where more than 6,000 taxi drivers and hire car operators alleged that the rideshare company destroyed their livelihoods and operated illegally. This case is one of the largest class action lawsuits ever pursued in Australia. Citing Uber's unfair and illegal practices and aggressive strategies, 
The lawsuit claims that Uber had an unfair competitive advantage against taxi and hire car industry participants who were actually complying with the law. Uber still denies the allegation that the company was illegally operating in Australia. In July of 2020, the company lost its bid to block the class action lawsuit. All of Uber's arguments were rejected by the Victorian Supreme Court of Appeal, and so the case is still ongoing. It seems that this class action lawsuit has encouraged Uber to try to cover its ground and better protect its own interests in other countries. On August 31st of 2020, Uber updated its contract with its drivers to try to keep its Canadian drivers from joining or starting class action lawsuits against the company, which threatens to upend a $400 million fight from drivers who want to be recognized as employees. The drivers who do not sign the new contracts get locked out of the Uber app, and are prevented from going online unless they accept the new agreement. Uber instead wants its drivers to agree to settle their issues with the company through arbitration or on an individual basis. An employment lawyer who was pursuing the case claimed that this could have a negative effect on protecting the rights of drivers contracted with Uber. Another scandal that Uber faced in 2018 was that a self-driving car struck and killed a woman in Arizona because it wasn't able to recognize that pedestrians jaywalked in 2017, Uber came across a force that seemed much larger than the law. Google. What was then Google's self-driving car division, Waymo, accused Uber of stealing technology to advance their own autonomous car development, claiming that ex-Google engineers stole the design for the laser sensor that allows self-driving cars to map the environment around them. However, this led to a very surprising settlement. Waymo would receive 0.34% of Uber's equity, which was about a value of $245 million. What this meant was that Google was essentially investing in Uber's future. So that was a very brief overview, just the tip of the iceberg of the issues that Uber has had with both regulators and competitors. A lot of these issues run quite deep because Uber has faced them in many different countries. I'll link some additional sources in the show notes in case anyone is interested in reading more about this issue. Before I move on to the next part, it's important to get a general idea of the way Uber runs its operations, particularly with their employees. There is, of course, the issue of the fact that traditionally Uber has not considered its drivers to be employees, but rather independent contractors. And that's what I'll be discussing in a minute. But it is important to look at who Uber does actually employ, what their jobs are, and how they ensure that the company is constantly striving to increase profit margins and work to build a more efficient system. I won't go too in-depth about the workplace culture at Uber. Suffice it to say that the company has garnered a lot of criticism, from accusations of sexism, to sexual misconduct allegations, to what Vanity Fair calls a reckless competitive streak and a cutthroat culture. What I will be discussing briefly is who the company actually hires. Uber has placed a large emphasis on hiring data scientists and economists, the roles of which are absolutely vital to analyzing the data, creating thousands of randomized control tests a year in order to keep improving the algorithms to increase profit margins, which has led to the highly controversial optimization of surge pricing. And that is just one example of many of how economists at companies like Uber will continue to shape the way the business is run. Uber is only one of many tech companies that boasts of how many PhDs they have in their economics team. In 2015, Uber reportedly hired 50 employees from Carnegie Mellon's top robotics lab in order to develop autonomous vehicle technology. Part 3. Uber and its drivers 
There are some who blame Uber for ushering in the modern gig economy, which some experts are saying is choking the middle class. The idea of the gig economy has actually been around for decades, but Uber could take some credit in popularizing the idea and centering it around technology. For those who don't know, the gig economy is defined as a labor market characterized by the prevalence of short-term contracts or freelance work as opposed to permanent jobs. What this means for a company like Uber is that they don't treat their drivers as employees, but instead as independent contractors. This was originally posed as a huge benefit to drivers because it allowed a lot of flexibility, particularly because drivers could decide on their own working hours. However, a major downside of this model is that in many ways, Uber drivers are treated as employees, but they don't receive benefits that they would otherwise have if they were considered employees. Drivers have to pay for their own cars, petrol, insurance, maintenance, and they don't receive benefits such as paid maternity leave or paid vacation days or health insurance. And a huge problem with the sudden rise and popularity of the gig economy is that they develop at an extremely fast rate, which means for many years, legislators and regulators have struggled to keep up, leading to what some call a huge disequilibrium between the legislation and the gig economy, which is why recent legal cases around the world are so substantial. In August of 2020, California State Supreme Court ruled that Uber and Lyft, two of the largest ride-sharing companies, have to treat their drivers as employees rather than as independent contractors. The companies may appeal, but if the rulings stand, they will now have to pay sick pay, unemployment insurance, and holiday pay to their drivers. The Financial Times views this judgment as the right one, emphasizing the fact that the gig economy has existed in a legal gray area, which has allowed businesses to avoid their obligations to workers. Uber's argument has been, for a very long time, that they are not a transportation company, but that instead, the company provides a service to link up drivers and customers, and therefore argues that their drivers are not a part of their core business because their business is a technology platform, not a transportation company. However, William Gold, a professor at Stanford Law School, claims that Uber is deciding who is suitable to do its work, what their wages will be, what the fare will be, and what percentage of the fare the worker will get. Another issue highlighted by ABC News is that there is often no real negotiation between the so-called independent contractors who are the drivers and Uber itself. If Uber decides to change the contract, drivers have to agree to it. Otherwise, they cannot log online into the app and therefore cannot drive and earn money. California state legislature aimed last year to make it more difficult for companies to prove that workers were really independent contractors. They claimed that to count as self-employed, workers had to be, quote, free from direction and control, unquote, and perform a service that is, quote, outside the usual course of business of the employer, unquote. Uber tried to argue that the drivers were indeed performing work outside the usual course of the company's business because their business is a technology platform to its drivers in exchange for a service fee. In other words, Uber's customers are the drivers and not the riders. This argument was summarily dismissed. The Californian judge said that the company's argument flies in the face of economic reality and common sense. And Uber's argument that being forced to pay the minimum wage and sick pay would devastate their business also did not work out in their favor because gig economy workers have often fallen outside the legal protection that they need as workers. Benjamin Sachs, a labor law professor at Harvard Law School, claims that under the Californian law, Uber is very clearly a transportation company and not a technology company. Another legal fight that Uber will have to face in California is that government officials now have another enforcement mechanism 
to ensure that companies like Uber cannot simply try to force worker classification cases into closed arbitration processes, as they are currently trying to do in Canada, because they often lead to downplaying of workers' rights and labour protection. In July of 2019, a UK court ruled that Uber drivers are workers rather than independent contractors, a case that is considered one of the most significant British employment cases for several years. Uber is now in its final-ditch attempt to appeal this decision. The judgment was based on the fact that Uber controls too much of their drivers' work by allocating them customers and dictating prices. Therefore, as workers, they should be entitled to the minimum wage as well as holiday pay. The Supreme Court is not expected to make a ruling for several months. If Uber loses, the decision will likely have a significant impact on the gig economy and its insecure nature for its workers, which employ an estimated 4.7 million people in the UK alone. This could pave the way for these people to be entitled to the minimum wage as well as holiday pay. The attitude towards Uber and other gig economy-based companies is rapidly changing in many countries due to the lack of protection their workers face. This issue has been highlighted during the pandemic, where many self-employed and gig economy workers have fallen through the gaps in countries' attempts to protect incomes. Many believe that in the long term, the solution is to increase regulation in order to protect workers and enforce labor laws. Sarah O'Connor writes for the Financial Times that the Uber ruling in the UK shows that the gig economy is, quote, running out of road, unquote. She writes that there is a very contorted relationship between companies such as Uber and Deliveroo and their so-called contractors, where companies have to be extremely careful with how to communicate with their couriers. For example, going as far as not calling their clothes uniforms, but rather branded clothing, which is an indication of companies walking on eggshells to ensure that their wording is not viewed as communication with their employees rather than with their independent contractors. O'Connor claims that algorithmic management has allowed companies to assume much of the power of employees with none of the responsibility. And while many have feared that that will represent the future of work, court rulings, such as those in the UK and California, appear to halt such ideas in their tracks. It will be very interesting to note how Uber goes forward from decisions such as these, and how it will affect their business. Part 4. The Future of Uber As I just said, it will be very difficult to predict how the company will move forward if they will have to start treating drivers in different countries as employees rather than as independent contractors, as that will significantly affect the company's bottom line. And Uber's hopes for turning profit in 2020 appear to have been dashed by the pandemic, as the company lost about $1.8 billion between June and August of 2020. However, the company has experienced growth from its delivery business, Uber Eats. And the company increased its market share in the food delivery business in the United States by acquiring Postmates in July of 2020. Prior to the pandemic, Uber had ambitions for flying taxis, a service it claimed would launch by 2023. However, it seems unlikely that Uber will meet its goal on time. As can be seen in recent years, regulators have been catching up to the company, and it seems as though Uber's business model will no longer suffice, with Uber seemingly dealing with losses and legal battles on every front. And with that, I'd like to wrap up on this episode of Business Breakdown. As always, the sources used in the research for this episode will be linked in the show notes below. If you enjoyed this episode, 
or this podcast in general, please leave us a star review on Apple Podcasts. And if you're interested in updates about Legal Perk, please follow our social media accounts. That's Legal Perk on Facebook and LinkedIn, and Legal Perk underscore on Instagram and Twitter. If you have any comments or suggestions for topics you would like us to cover, email us at legalperk at gmail.com. Thanks again for listening.